Well, Jacques Cousteau once said, the sea, once it casts its spell, holds on in its net of wonder forever. Mankind has always marveled at the sea. It's a place of great beauty and wonder, life and sustenance. Also, though, danger and fear. For as many people who love the sea, there are as many more who fear it. The sea in itself is inherently dangerous to man. Just by nature, it presents a risk of drowning. Last time I checked, mankind doesn't do too well underwater for long. And so the sea is a natural barrier to life. But even under, below the surface, there's a whole world of creatures, great and small, many of which are deadly to man, from jellyfish to shark. There are plenty of reasons to fear the sea. Do you fear the sea? I do. I think probably my greatest fear is being lost at sea. And it's only made worse when you hear all these stories of people lost at sea and what they went through. And being a World War II history buff, it always makes me think of the same story, the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. Just two weeks before the World War II ended, the Indianapolis was on mission. It was delivering, the, at the time, the world's largest supply of enriched uranium to an island that would later go on to be part of the first atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Just after that mission, they set sail for the Philippines. Didn't make it very far. Just after midnight on July 30th, two torpedoes struck the ship, and the damage was catastrophic. Went down in 12 minutes. At a, at a crew of 1,200, 300 went down with the ship. The other 900 or so just plunged into the pitch-black Pacific, left to float around. Only a few lifeboats could be launched. There were very few life jackets, so their only hope was rescue. The problem was that at the time, nobody knew the ship had sunk. The ship sent out a, a distress call that was received by three stations before they sank, but each of the stations ignored it. The first captain was drunk. The second commander told his men not to disturb him. And the third one thought it was a trick by the Japanese. So nobody knew and responded to the sinking of this ship. It wasn't until four days later that the floating crew was spotted on accident by a random patrol flight. Four days lost at sea may not sound like much, but there are plenty of occasions to fear being lost at sea for that long. And the survival account of one Woody Eugene James tells just how harrowing those four days were. Day one, 900 men were in the water. They were scattered about. James and a friend linked in with a group of about 150 that could float together. They figured they'd be picked up before the day was over because, of course, the Navy knew where they were. They were due in the Philippines that morning, and when they didn't arrive, surely they would come looking for them. They knew they would be rescued, but the whole day passed, and nightfall came, and there was no rescue, and it got cold. Day two, the sharks show up. They were, there, they were there the first day, but no one was bit until now. But they're still thinking and hoping that rescue will come any minute, any minute. How could it not? I mean, they knew where they were, but the second day passes, and the scorching heat turns into a freezing cold, and when it comes to nighttime, they're just praying for the sun to come up. Day three, some of the guys start drinking salt water and are going crazy. They're hallucinating. One guy says the Indianapolis has not sunk. It's just right there below the surface. He can see it. The commissary's open. He tells guys, just come with me. I'm going to go just get a drink of water. Three or four guys listen. They go down. They don't come back up. Now there are hundreds of sharks. And they attack in the late afternoon and even worse at nighttime. During the night, nobody sleeps. It's very quiet. But occasionally you hear guys scream. And then you know a shark has got them. Day four, for many, all hope seems lost. I mean, how could rescue not have arrived by now? They've had no food, no water, no sleep for days. They're dehydrated, yet waterlogged. They're scorched by the sun during the day, yet they're at risk of hypothermia by night. And those who even dare taste the salt water are doomed to dementia and saltwater poisoning. Fights start to break out among the men, so James and his friend, they, they decide to break away from the group and go float by themselves. To make a long story short, the two of them survive barely for one more night, and in the morning, the Navy finally arrives and they're rescued. But this event represents the greatest loss of life at sea by the U.S. Navy. 900 men entered, entered the water, 
Only 317 made it out. The sharks took many. This, this event marked the greatest shark attack in world history that we know of on one occasion. But more people died from hypothermia, dehydration, saltwater poisoning. And just in general, we understand this event just as a mere representation of how dangerous the sea is and how there are many reasons to fear the sea. I think we can easily say the sea is man's greatest natural enemy. It holds so much wonder and amazement that we're drawn to it, but don't get drawn too closely or it will draw you down. And interestingly enough, the Bible has plenty to say about the sea. And even in the passage we come to this morning, we happen to find the greatest tale of fear at sea ever. And with that, you can turn your Bibles now to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. And for our purposes, the last time we'll be in Mark chapter 4 because we come to finish the chapter this morning as we make our way through the Gospel of Mark. We're finishing Mark 4, but this passage actually marks the beginning of a new section in the Gospel of Mark. Throughout chapter 4, Mark slowed down the action a little bit for an extended time of teaching the parables of Jesus. But now Mark picks up the, the narrative, and he moves fast. He's like a rushing stream. He, he moves us fast through the life of Christ. And in chapter 5, we witness Jesus bounce around the Sea of Galilee from one side of the shore to the other, doing ministry. And now, through chapter 6, verse 6, we find a series of events that sharply testify as to the true identity of Jesus. And in these next few passages, we find that Jesus is Lord over nature, Lord over demons, Lord over disease, and even Lord over death. And we begin this section in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Our passage today, which records that the famous story, you all know it, where Jesus stills the sea. The disciples are caught in this massive storm at sea where all hope is lost. They believe that they're going to perish And this intense fear grips them. It's like the sea has its hands around their neck. Meanwhile, Jesus, he's in the boat with them, but he's not too worried. He's sleeping. And they wonder, how could he be sleeping at a time like this? So they rouse him awake and they rebuke him. But just keep in mind, anytime you want to rebuke Jesus, just think twice about that. It usually doesn't end well. Jesus gets up, he delivers two rebukes of his own, and and this is where things get unexpected. Because he first rebukes the wind and the sea, and they listen. In an instant, the storm is gone, it's replaced by a perfect calm. And then Jesus turns toward the disciples, and he rebukes them. What are they scared of? Didn't they have faith? And what do they think was really going to happen to them? Don't they know who he is? And the ending of this story is profound. The disciples turn to one another. And now they're gripped by an even greater fear. And they start to wonder, just just who is this Jesus? Who is he? Who can do such things? And the answer to that question is obvious. And the realization of it hits them like a bag of bricks. And they learn that the only thing more fearful than the sea is the one who controls the sea. And they learn that the natural forces outside the boat are nothing compared to the supernatural forces inside the boat. It's scarier inside the boat. So, what they really need to learn is to fear Jesus. This story then morphs into a lesson on fear versus faith, humanity versus deity, and all of these intersect in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, you know this story. I'm sure you've heard it all before. It's one thing to summarize it. It's another thing to sail through it and see it in greater detail. And that's what we want to do now. There are many lessons to learn, powerful, profound. So we're going to take a more detailed trip through Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. And let's begin with this. So just give you a little simple descriptive outline to, to help you carry along. So begin with this, a fateful trip. Number one, a fateful trip. Verses 35-36. Verse 35, On that day, when evening came, he said to them, 
Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. As you know, Mark is the shortest gospel, but the events that it does record has some these really fun little details that you don't find anywhere else. For example, Mark is the only one that mentions this event happens, he says, verse 35, quote, on that day. And so you're wondering, what day is he talking about? Well, it's referred to as Christ's long day. This day starts all the way back in chapter 3, verse 20. And you might remember the events. Jesus has been traveling around. He finally returns home, presumably to Capernaum. And he enters the house early in the morning, but immediately the crowd swamps him. doesn't even have time to eat. His family hears about this. They think he's lost it. His fanatical way of life is going to be the death of him. So they come to take him away. But Jesus deals with his family, puts them aside. He continues to minister. Meanwhile, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're out in the crowd, and they're starting to pipe up. And they're spreading this rumor, this claim. You know, Jesus, he just works by the power of Satan. He casts out demons by the ruler of demons. So Jesus calls them to himself now, and he deals with them, and then he teaches on the unforgivable sin. That was all the end of chapter 3. After this, Jesus, he, he leaves the city, he goes to the seaside. The crowd, they follow. So he gets into a little boat, and just offshore, he starts to teach the crowds. But this time, it's different. He starts to teach in parables. And this is Mark chapter 4. He begins his ministry of teaching them in parables. Well, at some point in the afternoon, Jesus leaves the boat. He comes back, enters the house. He's alone with his disciples. Maybe they had an early dinner. We don't know. But when he's alone, he he gives them the inside scoop on the parables. He explains them to his disciples. But after that, he goes back to the shore. The crowd is still there. He gets back in the boat. Presumably does more teaching. The text doesn't say. But we get towards the evening. It's a long day. This has been a long day. And that's where verse 35 comes in. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, let's go over to the other side. He's talking about the other side of the Sea of Galilee. At the time, he was on the western, the northwestern shore, which was heavily populated. But now he's like, let's go to the eastern shore. There's no one there. Most likely he wants to escape the crowds, get some rest. Verse 36, leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. There's another little detail that only Mark gives us that there's more than one boat. There were other boats. And we know this. Jesus had more than 12 disciples. On one occasion, remember, he sent out 70 of them to preach. So it's likely there's a a little flotilla of vessels sailing along with him to the other side of that shore that evening. And just as an interesting historical note, back in 1986, the hull of a fishing vessel was found perfectly preserved in mud on the Sea of Galilee, just five miles south of Capernaum. And they found this boat, and it was was dated back between 120 B.C. and 40 A.D., so it's a perfect example of what a fishing vessel would have looked like in the day of Christ on the Sea of Galilee. And so it's a great example. The vessel was 27 feet long, 7.5 feet wide, four and a half feet tall. The fore and the aft were covered with a small deck for sitting, for sleeping. It it was propelled by four rowers, two on each side, and in total it could hold about 15 people. So we don't really know for sure, but it seems likely that this type of boat housed Jesus and his 12 disciples on this fateful trip, and the other disciples floated alongside in some other boats. But this fateful trip didn't last long before they were met by a storm. And this leads us to number two, a fierce tempest. A fierce tempest, meaning storm. Number two, verse 37, a fierce tempest. Verse 37, and there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. Sea of Galilee is seven and a half miles wide. So it would have been a several hour journey just to cross to the other side. And somewhere along the way, they're out there, they're in open water, smooth sailing, but then this storm hits and it's fast. And we're not talking about a rainstorm. Rain and clouds are never even mentioned. 
This was a windstorm. The word in the Greek is lilops. It's a term that's also used for hurricanes. The same word was used in the Greek version of the Old Testament to refer to the whirlwind out of which God spoke to Job. Remember that? This fierce whirlwind shows up and God speaks to Job from it. We're talking about a massive windstorm, a sudden squall, and it turns the water into very choppy, rough seas. The water, it's like it starts to tremble. In fact, Matthew, in his account, he he uses the word seismos, to refer to the water. It's like a sea quake. It's like an earthquake on the water. The water's just violently trembling. Luke, in his version, he gives us a, another accurate explanation. He says this storm came down. And that, that's very accurate, actually, and fitting. The Sea of Galilee sits 700 feet below sea level. It's the lowest freshwater lake in the world. And it's surrounded by these steep cliffs and mountains. And just just a short distance north, 30 miles north, there's Mount Hermon. And that rises to 9,200 feet. So in just a short difference, we have a massive elevation change, 10,000 feet elevation change. And so what happens at times is that this cold upper air from Mount Hermon rushes down through the valleys and the gorges, picks up speed, and then it slams into the hot air rising from the Sea of Galilee. And this causes an explosion of turbulence. Massive winds are created, and in turn, they violently thrash the water. And this still happens today on the Sea of Galilee. It's a very unique situation. Fishermen today still fear these afternoon squalls, which if you're not ready, they'll, they'll catch you unguarded, and they can take you down. Even just a few years ago, massive waves were recorded on the lake. And they're not the biggest waves in the world, but they're enough to take down a wooden vessel a little rowboat. Verse 37 mentions water was breaking over the sides of the boat. It was filling up. And that was the real danger. It was filling up faster than they could bail it out. If they even had bails. The other problem with that is the more the boat fills up, the lower it sits in the water. And the lower it sits in the water, the more it fills up. And that's why in a vessel, just, as you just start taking on water, it doesn't take long before you sink. It, just, it goes exponentially, and, and you're going down. Back then, there was no lifeboat to throw out. There were no life jackets. Even if they could swim, if you go over, you're a goner. You're out in open water in the middle of a storm. You're, you're a goner, and they knew it. The Sea of Galilee already claimed many lives. They thought they were next. And so I'm sure for a time when this store came, the disciples were frantically trying to, to bail or splash water out of the boat. It wasn't working. Jesus, though, wasn't giving them much help. He was busy doing something else, catching a little nap. We find now, thirdly, a fatigued teacher. Thirdly now, a fatigued teacher. From a fateful trip, met by a fierce tempest, now, thirdly, a fatigued teacher. Beginning of verse 38. When we look at Jesus, he, what's he doing? Verse 38. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. You can stop there. Jesus came to earth as fully God to do a work that only God could do. But he also came as fully man. And as a man, he slept. And he needed to sleep, just like us. In reality, did Jesus sleep every night? Yeah, except for a few prayer all-nighters. He slept every night. But in the New Testament, this is the only record of him actually sleeping. And it just so happens to be in the midst of a massive storm, the least likely of times and places to sleep. He's at the back of this little boat. He's on a little deck. It's raised up, so he's protected from most of the splashing waves. He's got a little cushion which may be nothing more than a sandbag used for ballast. But he's turned this arrangement into a makeshift bed, and he's, he's passed out. He's out. And this brings up two questions. First, how could Jesus sleep in a place like this? It's so uncomfortable, the waves moving, you're on a little wooden deck. And the answer is because he was extremely exhausted. Just not long before this, he had pulled a prayer all-nighter, 
And then that day was an exhausting long day of ministry and teaching and rebuking. So he's exhausted. And when you're dead tired, you know this, has this happened to you? You can sleep anywhere. That's happened to me through seminary, through all-nighters. When you get tired, you can sleep just about anywhere. It's like in an airline terminal. I think they designed those seats to be as uncomfortable as possible. They don't want you sleeping there. But if you you were tired enough, you could sleep there. And likewise, Jesus, even in the most uncomfortable of places, amidst a swishing boat and a splashing sea, he was sound asleep. This leads to another question, though. How could he sleep in a time like this? I mean, isn't he worried? Isn't he scared? It's like when you're on a plane, you hit a pocket of turbulence, and the whole plane starts shaking and rattling violently, and and you're there gripping the seat with white knuckles. You're scared to death. You look over at the person next to you, and, and they're sleeping. And you wonder, how can you sleep at a time like this? Aren't you worried? We're going down. Well, maybe they're just tired, but maybe, just maybe, this person is sleeping because they trust God's sovereignty. Maybe it, maybe it could happen. When, when you're in a plane, after all, everything is totally out of your control. Unless you're the pilot, you have no control. Just you're along for the ride. So why worry about it? Why not just trust God's will and sleep? That's what Jesus did. Just like the farmer in the parable he just told. He trusted God's providential working. He had no reason to fear. And so he slept easy. Even in the midst of a storm, he slept easy. And it sounds like a plan to me. And in the Bible, there's another story, another famous story of a man who was fast asleep at the bottom of a vessel during during the middle of a, a massive storm. Do you know what that is? Do you know what story that is? Jonah. Jonah. Jonah was a prophet. But God said, hey, Go to Nineveh. I want you to preach to these Gentiles. And he's like, I don't want Gentiles to be saved. I don't want to do that. So he ran away. He ran from God's calling, God's commission. He hopped on a boat. He's like, take me in the exact opposite direction from Nineveh. That's what he did. And so God sent a fierce storm upon the the Mediterranean. And that boat was in danger of being crushed by the storm. And, And they were freaking out. Meanwhile, Jonah, where's he? He's at the bottom of the boat just sleeping. Just sound asleep. The captain comes, wakes him up. He's like, how can you sleep at a time like this? Go and call upon your God to save us. Jonah knew what was going on. He already knew. He knew the storm was on his account. He knew God was chasing him. He tells the crew what's going on, how he was running from his God. The crew says, who are you? And Jonah says this in Jonah chapter 1, verse 9. He said to them, I am a Hebrew... And I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This causes the crew to greatly fear. But when you read this, you should stop and say, "Eh, not so fast, Jonah. Not so fast. If you really feared God, you wouldn't be running away from him. Jonah's real problem was a lack of fear. He's known as the disobedient prophet. And Jonah wasn't sleeping in that storm because he trusted God so much. Like, oh, I just trust God. I'm just going to go to sleep. That's not Jonah. Just the opposite. He didn't fear God enough, and God was going to show him whom to fear. But Jesus is different. Jesus is sleeping in the storm because he is at a perfect peace with God, trusting God for whatever will happen. Jesus is a fatigued teacher, catching some sleep. Quite a contrast with the disciples. Number four, they represent a frantic troop. Number four, a frantic troop. Look at verse 38 again. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Again, it's hard for us to imagine because we're not scared of lakes. To us, lakes are fun. We go to lakes for recreation. But this lake was really on this day turned into a watery grave. The windstorm whipped up these serious waves. The boat was violently churning. It wasn't going to break apart, but it's taking on water. And if it goes down, if it capsizes, they're, they're a goner. 
The disciples try and handle the situation, but, but they soon fall into a frenzied desperation. They literally think they're going to die. This could be it. They're about to perish. There's nothing more they can do. They can't bail the water out fast enough. They're hopeless. What's really striking about this is just remember, for several of the disciples, what was their profession? They were fishermen. Where? On the Sea of Galilee. I mean, this was their business. This was not their first storm. They were not caught off guard. They had been in this situation before. But this storm was unlike the others. They were truly gripped by fear. This was it. This was enough to take them down. And that's telling you something. When the fishermen are scared of drowning, you know you're in trouble. It's like you're back on the plane again. You hit that pocket of turbulence. It's shaking violently. Everything's rattling. Luggage is starting to fall down. This time you look at the person next to you, and they're not sleeping. They're freaking out even more than you are. They think you're, you're all going to die. You're going to crash. You, you ask them, so what do you do for a living? And they say, I'm a pilot. <laughs> not what you want to hear. Not the news you were looking for. Because if, if the pilot's scared that you're going to crash, that's not very reassuring news. So on this occasion, you have all these seasoned fishermen and they've given up. They think they're going to die. And they say, it's time to wake up the carpenter. And when that happens, you know things are bad. They start to reason to themselves. Looking at Jesus, they're bailing water, trying to save themselves. He's just sleeping. How can he sleep at a time like this? Okay, that's, that's fair enough. How can you sleep at a time like this? But they take it a step further. And they question, doesn't he care about us? Does he care that we're perishing? They start to wonder and doubt his intentions. So they decide to wake him up. And there's a hint of rebuke in their statement. And most likely, we, we don't know for sure, we can't say, but most likely this came from Peter. right? These words are only found in Mark. And, and uh, Peter uh, was the source for much of Mark. This would not be the last time Peter voiced some words of rebuke to Jesus. Never worked out well for Peter when he did that. We don't know for sure, but they wake him up with a hint of rebuke. Don't you care that we're perishing? There's really a sad irony here, though. Because on this occasion, Jesus is sleeping during the disciples' hour of trial. But it's not because he doesn't care about them. He, he just he trusts God. He trusts God's sovereignty. There's nothing to fear. But on another occasion, on another occasion, the disciples will fall asleep during Christ's hour of trial. And on that occasion, it will be because of a lack of concern on their part. And the very words which they wrongly rebuked Jesus with would on that day in the Garden of Gethsemane perfectly apply to them, where Jesus could say to them, how can you sleep at a time like this? Don't you know that I'm perishing? And for now though, the hour of Christ's trial had not come. He couldn't die on that lake. Not possible. And neither could they. They would not perish that evening. And this storm was not going to last. We find number five, a fast tranquility. A fast tranquility, verse 39. After being rebuked and woken up, Jesus, verse 39, got up and rebuked the wind. And said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. This was not expected. The disciples maybe were expecting a word of encouragement from Jesus. All right, guys, we're going to make it through this. You can do this. Just bail faster. We'll be okay. But I can't imagine they were expecting this reaction. The disciples had witnessed Jesus perform miracles of healing, but nothing quite like this. They had not yet witnessed his vast power over all creation. Nothing to this scale, nothing to this magnitude. And don't get me wrong, seeing someone born blind, being able to see you know, just like that, is, is amazing. Water into wine, I mean, it's, it's dumbfounding. But just imagine this raging typhoon, hurricane-force winds, water is just boiling. And just in a, in a few seconds, it all disappears. And the sea becomes like perfect glass. 
Now, all this happens by command. By command. We have a word for that. It's called power. And Jesus possessed that power, and he wielded that power just with a word. He says, hush, be still. And they, the sea listens. I mean, to whom is he talking? He's not talking to anyone. He's talking to the wind and the waves as if he, he knows them, as if he expects them to listen. You know, we, we call people who talk to trees and clouds and the water and the sky, we call them crazy. That's what crazy people do. But Jesus spoke to creation and it listened. And I can, I can think of one other time when that happened. Remember, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And Jesus possesses that same power over creation. He said no prayer. He recited no spell. He performed no ritual. He drank no potion. All he did was speak and creation listened. And understand, there's no natural explanation for this. Some try and propose some natural explanation. There's none. It's bottom line. Look, either you accept God and the supernatural or you don't. But there's no middle ground where you can find a natural explanation for this. Because not only did in a second the wind stop howling, but in that same short period of time the waves just melted away and became perfectly calm. I remember as a kid in the pool in my parents' house taking a boogie board, and if you kind of ride on it for long enough, you can create like a wave pool, and you keep it up, you can get the whole pool to be really slushing around, making these waves in the pool. And even when you stop, the waves continue for a minute or two. It takes a minute or two for them to die down. And we know that. Waves continue for a little while before they die down. That's not what happened here. Even after the wind stopped, the water stopped churning at the same time. It was as if the energy of the boiling sea melted away and it just turned to glass. It was supernatural. So it was not a natural occurrence. We can only imagine the look on the face of the disciples in the moment, the gulp down their throats, and the complete confusion among the other boats. They didn't know what's going on. They're like, what's happening here? What just happened? But more was happening than the disciples knew about. This storm was not an accident. Jesus led them into this storm. For them, it was not just a storm. It was a faith trial. This is number six. A faith trial. Verse 40. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? See, this storm was arranged. This was a trial for the disciples. It was Christ's idea to get in the boat and cross the sea at night. He led them right into this. But they should have known better. What what were they really afraid of? Were they afraid that they were going to die? Were they afraid that Jesus was going to die? Didn't they know yet that that couldn't happen? Had they not yet put two and two together? And apparently not. To blame is their lack of faith. But don't don't misunderstand Christ's rebuke to them. He's not saying that they have zero faith at all. Rather, they do believe in him, but they still have a little faith. They have a small faith. Even though they're insiders, they're still not trusting Jesus like they should. If they had only realized who they were setting out to see with, there's no reason to fear. That being said, the disciples were always playing with half, half a deck until the death and resurrection of Jesus. To their credit, they did turn to Jesus when the storm hit. But they should have trusted him more than that. Their faith should have cast out their fear. This whole event was a trial for them, but they didn't do too well. Before you criticize the disciples, remember, this still happens today. Trials can shake our faith, can tempt us to doubt. Even true believers can be shaken by trials. And the question is, will you let fear, even a very real fear, overpower your faith? That's the battle. And those storms, they rage every single day. This is a a thought we want to return to. But first, let's let's go ahead and finish this passage out. The conclusion in the matter is clear. And this whole incident leads to, verse 41, a frightening truth. A frightening truth. 
from a fateful trip to a fierce tempest to a fatigued teacher to a frantic troop to a fast tranquility, a faith trial. It all leads up to a frightening truth. Verse 41, after this happened, they became very much afraid and they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey them, obey him? The disciples before were afraid. They were scared before. They were frightened during the storm to the point of death. They thought they were going to die. But now something makes them even more afraid. And I love this in the Greek. This is one of those cases where going to the original language, you get some of that special insight, which is just kind of fun. In this passage, this short passage, three times Mark uses this word in Greek, megas, which means great or enormous. We would, we would just say mega, the word mega. First in thir- verse 37, this was a mega storm. Not just any storm, this was a mega storm. It was a massive storm. But after Jesus calmed it, verse 39, it became what? A mega calm. That's the word in the Greek for perfectly calm. It was a mega calm. As a result of this, though, the disciples, what did they have? Verse 41, a mega fear. They had a mega fear. That's what it says massively, or they became very much afraid. Same word. They now become exceedingly afraid because what they just witnessed begs one question, and there's but one answer to that question. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this? Who can do such things? The healing miracles that Jesus performed, I mean, they blew people away, of course. They were amazing. But you could always argue, well, okay, but you know, people, people were healed in the Old Testament. I mean, even Elijah raised someone from the dead. And that's true. And there were even nature miracles in the Old Testament. Even Elijah stopped the rain. So that's true. But it, there's such a difference because every time people in the Old Testament, they called upon God for their power. It was always crystal clear that someone like Elijah, he's, he's no superman. He's not, he's not special. People feared Elijah, yeah, but that's because they feared the God standing behind Elijah, not puny Elijah. That's unlike Jesus, though. I mean, to whom does he appeal for his power? Where is his prayer to God to stop the wind and the waves? What special formula does he recite? What, what ritual does he do to make the wind stop? There's none of that. He just speaks, and he expects the wind and the sea to obey him, and they do. The scale of this miracle where he's stopping an entire sea from raging, and the manner in which Jesus performs it, it begs one question. Who can do this? What sort of a person can do this? And that question has but one answer, and it's God. Only the one who created the wind and the sea can command them with such authority as this. So what does it say about Jesus? Well, pretty much the same as this, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17. Referring to Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. The disciples were, were just starting to wonder at this point. Could it be that Jesus is God in the flesh? Could that be? They, were, they had already caught on that he was the Christ. He's the Messiah. And that, that's wonderful. But wait, is the Messiah also the God-man? You know, what, what does that mean? Can, can this be? But indeed, this is the case, and in hindsight, this is why all four gospel writers write. That, that's why. To let you know that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God together. Jesus comes doing things only God can do. Jesus saves, only God can save. Jesus forgives sin, only God can forgive sin. Jesus has power, total power over demons, nature, sickness, and death. Only God has that power. When the disciples witnessed that power, they finally began to put two and two together. 
And when they realized, what was their response? Fear. Intense fear. Mega fear. Because suddenly the person in the boat with them became scarier than all the storms in the world. They were standing in the presence of the most holy God. And they just witnessed a fraction of his power and his glory. And that, that's terrifying. Why? Because they're sinners. They don't belong in the presence of the most holy God. Neither do we. If God was in the boat with them, they're safer in the water. Jesus protected them from the storm, but who's going to protect them from Jesus? Just like Isaiah, when he witnessed God's glory in the throne room, he thought he was doomed because he was an unholy man in the presence of the holy God. How could he live? But Isaiah did live, and so do here the disciples. They do live. How can that be? Because Christ was not their adversary. And to the contrary, he he implored them, do not be afraid. Rather, have faith. It's because he did not come to judge them. He came to save them. And this really brings us now to the heart of this whole episode. We wonder, what's this all about? Why is this here? What what is this teaching in this passage? And so many use this to teach the simple lesson that Jesus will be with you in the midst of life's storms. He'll, He'll always be with you in the midst of life's storms. And you know what? That's true. That's a true statement. It's a true lesson. It's a valid lesson. But you can't even get to that lesson until you first apprehend verse 41. Who is this? Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And that's, that's what this passage is really about. That's the heart of it. Because who cares if Jesus is with you in the midst of the storms if he's not God? And man, come down. Jesus is God and man in one. And this is such a wonderfully unique passage where the humanity and the deity of Jesus come together in an undeniable way. I mean, just look, before he was asleep. God doesn't sleep. God doesn't need to sleep. But a human nature does. And Jesus slept. But then right after that, he commands creation and it listens in an instant. Man can't do that. Only God can. And the only explanation is that Jesus is God and man come together. Just like the entire New Testament testifies. And when you realize this, what should your response be? When you get that, when you really understand that thought, how should you respond? Fear. You should be afraid. Because when you consider His holiness and your sin, they don't belong. Those don't go together. You're not going to stand long in the face of of a holy God who's that powerful. He's that powerful and holy. That doesn't look good for us. The disciples should have realized, though, that they didn't have to fear when they realized what God came to earth for. Jesus came to save us from sin, from judgment, from death. And if you turn to him with that faith, he will save you. He has the power, power to create, power to judge, power to save. He's proven that power. He puts it on display. It's left to you to turn from your sins, turn to him as Lord and Savior, God and man. And if you do that with faith, you will pass out of judgment and into eternal life. And when you do that, there's nothing left to fear. You don't have anything left to fear. It's like the Jews, after the Exodus, right through the Red Sea, they turn, they look back, and they witness God's power. He just parted the Red Sea, delivered them, crushed the Egyptians. And when they saw that power and they realized, what was their response? Exodus chapter 14, verse 31. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord... And they believed in the Lord. It's a, it's a fear that turns into a faith. And when you do that, there's nothing left to fear. 
It's like Psalm 118, verse 6 says, The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This doesn't mean that you won't go through storms in life, though. And now we can get to this theme. You will. And sometimes even Jesus will lead you into these storms, like he did on this occasion. But he will be there with you, and he will use the storm to test you, to refine your faith in him. That is the purpose. Is this not everything we learned from 1 Peter? Did not Peter learn all of this himself firsthand? And he goes on to write this, 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 13. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also, at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. So look, here's the real takeaway from this episode. It begins with Jesus. You see this, you witness his power. You realize his identity. You confess his name. You come to believe in him. And when you do this, he saves you. He saves you from the storm of God's wrath the storms of life, from all judgment. And he gives to you something else. He gives you a peace, a perfect peace. And that peace will guard you in all storms. That in itself is supernatural. But it doesn't exempt you from all storms. Storms will come in life. He will give them to you for your testing. Be found approved. And do not instead, on occasion when the storms come, turn and doubt God's care for you like the disciples did. Lord, don't you care about us that we're perishing? Have you ever said something like that to God? Have you ever thought that about God? God, don't you care about me that I'm suffering? Don't you care that my friend is dying? Don't you care that I lost my job and I'm going broke? Don't you care that I was just diagnosed with cancer? Don't you care that my marriage is falling apart? Don't you care about me? I mean, where are you? Are you sleeping on me? Have you ever thought that or wondered that or asked that to God? Listen, never, ever doubt God's care and concern for you. Instead, you have to remember and realize that the very reason Jesus came the reason he was in the boat, the reason he went to the cross, is because he cares for you. Do you doubt God's love and concern for you? He already showed you his infinite love for you by sacrificing his son on the cross. What more can he do to prove to you his love? There's nothing more. And this is why there is never a just complaint against the love of God. For God so loved the world, he already gave his only begotten son. And so you will go through storms, and it is not because God doesn't care about you. Precisely the opposite. He cares about you so much, he wants to see your faith refined. There are no stormless seas. It's by God's designs. These storms can come in a flash, one minute in life. Smooth sailing, everything's great. The next minute, storm, hurricane. These times are meant to refine you, to sanctify you, to force you to trust Jesus more. Don't let them shake your faith. Don't let them cause you to doubt his love. And so remember Jesus, the stiller of storms, the one with complete power over creation. Remember who he is. Remember what he has done for you. Anchor your confidence in the cross. And then you can enjoy the eternal security, the peace that comes as a result, even in the face of death. Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's believe that. Let's pray. God in heaven, You are the powerful one. You are the God of all creation. And we marvel at your power. With a word you speak, creation comes into existence. And in the future, with a word you will speak again. And this world will will pass away. With a word you will judge. With a word you will save. We thank you for sending the divine word to the world. The Lord Jesus Christ. To provide for that salvation. Our salvation. It's true. How can we ever... Doubt your love for man. You love the world that you sent, that you gave, Jesus. And the Lord Jesus paid the ultimate price, his own life, separation from the Father, enduring the wrath of God for us. I pray everyone here that we're convinced of the, the vast love of God and that now for those who have turned to him, to Christ as Lord and Savior, nothing can separate us, not the sea, not the storm, not even death can separate us from Christ's love, that saving, redeeming love. We have all things in him. Let us rejoice and leave here rejoicing what God has done for us. For those who have not turned, may they do that today. The storms will come, and one storm will ultimately cost us all our lives. It's appointed for man to die once, and then comes a judgment. May they turn and, and, and latch on to the life raft of Jesus before it is too late. He's the only help amidst the storm the only raft, the only rock. And may they cling to him before it is too late. Reveal yourself to them, Lord, and cause them to turn to you. But still, we rejoice in all things for our great God who has done so much for us, the God of the storm. We give you glory. In your name we pray. Amen.